0: supernatural
1: is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does AM 1420, WBSN presents Spooky South Coast, with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa.
2: Alright, good evening, welcome to Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Moniz. Science advisor, sorry. <laughs> I was so excited to come on the air, I totally screwed up the intro. Let's start over. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. because of the beards. Tim yeah, Weiser right here. here. Along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor, Matt Moniz, and an alien life form that has taken over his face. <laughs> the symbiotic uh, hairy creature that he's tentatively calling Beard. Tele- Until uh, it receives further classification I know you sent sa- you sent samples to David Jacobs, right? Yes. And uh, is there any truth to the rumor that uh, Tom Biscardi glued that to your face?
1: I can either confirm or deny that.
2: Okay. All right. Well, yeah, and now Matt Costa thinks he's going to start growing a beard. <laughs> Matt, I know you can't nobody can see you on Spooky TV, but if you get a chance, make sure you pop in front of the camera so that they can see. This uh, it's I'm pretty am- it's pretty amazing because you rugged. you didn't look like that yesterday when yeah. you said you were going to start growing a beard. Should I get involved in this? I've already kind of got the goatee going. It's not really more bushier than your goatee. (laughs) Actually, I'm married, so there's no way I could get away with uh, participating in this contest. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. We're here to talk about... Normally, we talk about the paranormal here on Spooky South Coast. Tonight, we're going to talk about a little bit of hidden history that you might not be familiar with. uh, Not only for the locals here in the South Coast and Cape Cod area, but also... uh, to our national and international listeners as well. We always hear back from people when we do shows about local history. It seems to be something that's uh, extremely popular, and I wonder if it's because of our area being so unique and having such a rich history, or if it's because maybe if you listen to a lot of paranormal talk shows, it's stories that you don't get to hear from other parts of the country. So whatever it is that you like about the local stories, we love bringing it to you. We love educating you about things that we know about and we really love learning about things that we don't know anything about. And that's kind of the case with both uh, things that we'll be discussing tonight. Uh, I was unfamiliar with the whole story uh, of what we'll discuss in the first hour, Bellamy's Bride, The Search for Maria Hallett of Cape Cod by Kathleen Brunel. She's going to be joining us to talk with us about who Maria Hallett was, uh, who people said she was, and all about her love affair with the pirate Black Bellamy. We're going to talk about that We're going to talk about how it relates to some of the paranormal tales of Cape Cod that you may have heard. And uh, then coming up in the second hour, we're going to talk about four brave freed slaves who defended this country, well, defended this colony in the Revolutionary War and were given some land by the town of Plymouth for their efforts and uh, the efforts that modern-day people are making to build a museum on that site. So we're going to be joined by a representative from the Parting Ways Project a little bit later on, Wayne Ibn Musa Barboza, And you might have seen the story uh, in last week's Standard Times uh, by uh, Jack Blaine about parting ways. So we're going to talk about all that and more. So I'm just happy that we can bring this history out there. Guys, I know that you love to learn about this stuff as much as I do. Of course. Matt Moniz, who uh, had last week off, he was out partying. (laughs) But one of the things that we talked about last week is, you know, we talked about Spiricom. Yep. And we talked about some of the claims against it we'll say and it seems like you know a lot of the times when we're dealing with history uh people tend to want to shoot it down just as much as they want to prop it up in in the years ensuing and that's a great example of something that at the time was something that a lot of people talked about and believed in and was really excited about now looking back at it you know 30 years later they're kind of poo-pooing it and that's kind of what ends up happening hindsight's 2020 yeah (laughs) And uh, I know that uh, if you l- listen back to last week's show, uh, you can find out more about the new SpiritCom which we'll be using at Dead of Winter, coming up at the Lizzie Board and Bed and Breakfast on February 26th. We'll talk more about that a little bit later on the show. But just to let you know, before we get into tonight's discussion, there are only four tickets left. Four. And uh, they're going fast. There's only two weeks left. Uh, you've you've got to definitely hop on board now. Go to ghostvillage.com backslash lizzie and that'll be your chance to get tickets. The number's up there for the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. They'll take care of you. There's no rooms left, but there are a few hotels. If you go to Priceline.com, you can find a few uh, that are very reasonable uh, between the $55 and $85 price range. I recommend the Hampton Inn. If you can't stay at Lizzie Borden's, which is the ultimate place to stay, stay at the Hampton Inn. So, All right, well, why don't we get into the first-hour discussion with our guest Kathleen Brunel. She was born and raised on Cape Cod. She attended the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, where she earned bachelor's degrees in literature and writing, and her master's degree in English. Her work has appeared in Cape Cod View, Art Times, Moxie, and The Shop. She currently teaches English at Old Rochester Regional High School in Mattapoisett, and she lives with her husband Robert, their son, Balin, and their two golden retrievers, probably not too far from our studios. Good evening, Kathleen. How are you tonight?
0: Great. How are you?
2: Oh, we are spooktacular, as we say here.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. Well,
2: we're very excited to talk with you about your book, Bellamy's Bride, The Search for Maria Hallett of Cape Cod. It's by the History Press. Yep. And you can go to uh, KathleenBrunell.com, which is linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com, to pick up a copy. And it's also in all the local bookstores around here as well.
0: Yes, it is.
2: Now, it seems to me when I'm reading the book that uh, this isn't something that you just came up with the idea for and decided to write a book. It seems like this is something you've been researching for a good number of years. Yes,
0: probably for about ten years. Um, I heard the story quite a while ago from my mother's friend, and she likes to tell me all sorts of uh, paranormal stories and supernatural stories. So uh, she fell in love with this story about Maria Hallett and uh, Sam Bellamy, and she actually wanted me to write a book of fiction based on these characters. And um, I, I love history, and I love to research, and so I wanted to um, I, I wanted to look at the actual story because I thought that that was
2: a good story to tell. Now, we've heard stories before. Uh, We've talked about them here on the show with uh, guests like Derek Bartlett of the Cape and Islands Paranormal Research Society. We've talked about some of the ghost stories of Cape Cod, and one of the things that always comes up is the idea of these sea witches. Yes. And when I first saw the book Bellamy's Bride at the Sea Witch here in Fairhaven, (laughs) uh, I was intrigued by it because Marsha, the owner, recommended it so highly. I didn't realize when I opened it up and started reading it that there is a witch connection. There's a paranormal connection. It seems like this story of Maria Hallett has a little bit of everything.
0: Yes, there's there's definitely a connection to the um, Sea Witch of Billingsgate. And actually, Maria Hallett seems to sort of morph into the Sea Witch of Billingsgate. The story of that Sea Witch and other Sea Witches uh, were around for quite some time. And then uh, slowly, Maria seems to uh, mix in with that story, and the Sea Witch of Billingsgate had red, flashy shoes and uh, the same familiars as Maria had and was known to dice with the devil in the belly of a whale. and, and lots of sailors' stories of the time with the sea witch. And, again, they, they keep mixing these stories with uh, Maria Hallett. So she, she has become almost uh, known now as the sea witch of Billingsgate. And most people believe uh, when you speak of that sea witch that it's actually Maria Hallett.
2: But she didn't start with that sea witch reputation. Why don't no. you kind of fill everybody in on exactly how this story began between Maria Hallett and Bellamy?
0: Okay, Maria Hallett was uh, probably, we believe, about 15 or 16 years old um, in the early 1700s. And she lived in East Ham uh, on the Cape, um, as far as we know. And she uh, probably spent a lot of time at a place called um, Great Tavern on Great Island there. And she she met up with Sam Bellamy, we assume. We know Sam Bellamy existed. Uh, He came from England. And he came over to stay with relatives on Cape Cod. He was a sailor. And he came to um, make his life out here looking for um, an easy way out. He was looking for treasure. And she met him at some point, according to folklore. And when they met, it was, you know, love at first sight. She was supposedly one of the most beautiful women um, in the village at the time, and her parents were farmers, um, well-to-do farmers. Uh, so it, she was, you know, uh, prospective marriage for her. They were looking for a, a, a good connection for her, not really a, a poor sailor from England. And Bellamy was sort of rugged, and uh, supposedly they met in an apple orchard, and love at first sight and um, they spent uh, the evening in the orchard (laughs) and um, and, and in all the stories you get that that it was the the first night there and some stories say that it was sort of a one night thing and that he was leaving in the morning he was heading down to the coast of florida where some spanish galleons um, sank off the coast of florida after hurricane season as they were heading back with Money to Spain. And so it was sort of a gold rush um, down there at the time. And Bellamy was one of the men heading down, hoping to make some uh, money for himself. And so some stories say that he left that, you know, the next morning. And then other stories say that he was still on Cape for a few months uh, before he left. And so, you know, the story whether or not he knew that. Maria uh, because she was pregnant. So whether or not he knew that she was pregnant before he left and that was maybe extra emphasis for him to leave or um, or if he, he simply left and she found out that she was pregnant after, after he left. Um, but she gave birth um, to a child within nine months, a boy. Most of the legends say a boy. One says a girl. And the child died within a few days. Um, some say that that very night. Um, She was hiding the child and the pregnancy. And so um, when she gave birth to the child, she hid it in a barn, um, her uncle's barn, John Knowles. And the baby died supposedly by uh, choking on a piece of straw while she was out because she would go back and tend to it. Uh, The locals found out. and. She was sent to jail for the murder of the child and also for having a child out of wedlock. Um, and then it, they go on from stories there with the East Ham jail of her dealings with the devil um, at the jail. So that um, that starts all of the talk of her as a witch because she escapes the jail three times, they say. And it was probably that she was very beautiful and the jailer probably felt, uh, sympathy for her and probably let her go. Uh, she had probably already been whipped. There was a new whipping post installed for these very cases uh about a month prior to this case, and I have documentation of that. Uh, and so she heads out to the dunes, and there are these great, marvelous stories about the devil coming in with his his gold-tipped cane and releasing the bars for her if she would sell her soul. Um, to him, and and that none of this was her fault, and it was Bellamy's fault, and that she could seek revenge on Bellamy, and he would make sure that she had her revenge um, on the sailor, and that he would free her from the prison, and and that's when she went to go make her home out on the the dunes and live on her own, which added to the stories of her as a witch, um, because she was self-sufficient, and she grew her own food, um, and she the weaver as well, and, and supposedly people would only go to deal with her in the dead of night, you know, they wouldn't uh, be seen with her publicly.
2: Well, it seems like uh, for something that happens so often in society now, yeah. you know, the idea of these one-night stands and yep. <laughs> getting yep. impregnated, you know, and, and you, you work in high schools, you know, what's yeah. like. <laughs> it, it seems like, you know, now it's commonplace, but back then, at least what I gathered from reading the book is that it did happen, but there yeah. were very public consequences for it.
0: Yeah, it, it happened a lot. Actually, it happened far more than I realized. I was very surprised at the, uh, at the numbers. But girls had choices, you know, at that time. And the choice was either to force the man to uh, marry the girl, which they did. Um, the girl would tell her parents and, and the boy would be forced to marry her. Or she could also uh, marry another man. And if it was early enough in the pregnancy, then that man would just claim uh, the girl, uh, the child, as his. And You know, I mean, I teach when I teach Canterbury Tales in the Middle Ages, um, that was a common practice, if any man would be willing to do so for, you know, if he were paid enough. <laughs> and so uh, there were quite a few gentlemen willing to do that and um, marry these girls. But Maria was supposedly, uh, according to all of these legends and stories, she was very obstinate, and she wanted Bellamy, Yeah, you know, that's who she wanted and she was waiting for him and, and that's what she was going to do, you know, um, and and gave birth to this child. So whether her parents knew of the pregnancy or not, again, depends on most of the stories. Most, most say that they did not know um, until after she gave birth to the child.
2: And, and what's interesting, just as she starts off as this pretty young maiden who develops a reputation of a witch, uh, maybe not deservedly so, it seems like Bellamy is somebody who starts off with you know, kind of eh, good intentions, I guess you could say. I mean, the guy wanted yeah. to make some money, yep. uh, and and he just becomes a pirate along the way,
0: right? Because many of the uh, many of the sailors down in the Caribbean at that time, uh, they were all turning pirate, and so and he felt, you know, he had a philosophy, and his philosophy was basically that he had every right. Um, To he had every right to board ships and to take uh, the booty from the ships because he felt that the government was doing the exact same thing in England. And what gave the government the right to do that? He really developed sort of a uh, democratic philosophy. Um, as a pirate and, and look, i you know, I'm not an expert on the pirates but I did do a lot of research and looking into sort of the pirate code was very fascinating for me uh, very interesting and, and the way that these men um, looked at their life on the sea and they actually, you know, they viewed themselves as free men uh, they were not subject to any government and they took on um, slaves on the ships, Native Americans on the ships and all of the men were free on the ships Uh, So it was very interesting, and and as a matter of fact, Bellamy took over 50 ships uh, in in the time that he was gone, and one of the reasons he rose to power was because his uh, tutor, uh, Hornigold, who also was a uh, tutor for Blackbeard, he refused to attack British ships. And Bellamy did not have that problem. <laughs> didn't care. And so the men, you know, they elected their their leader, and they elected Bellamy, and they sent Hornigold packing. And and they really um, they voted, and the men collectively voted on everything, right up to who would run the ship. And so that's how Bellamy took over. And um, when he found the widow, which is the the major ship in this love story, you know, he uh, he chased that ship three days and he uh, they did have skirmishes there to get that ship but there were only a few ships where he actually had to battle to get the ship usually they just put the pirate flag out they went over they boarded the ship and they gave the captain uh, one of their lesser ships in the flotilla and sent the captain on his way and they gave the crew members the option to join or not. The only people they wouldn't give an option were carpenters, if they needed carpenters, um, et cetera, anyone they might need. They would sometimes force those people onto the ships. But other than that, they gave them uh, the option.
2: I would think, too, that in that period of time, I mean, we talk a lot, especially in schools and history class, we talk a lot about the Revolutionary Period. Uh, We talk a lot about the, you know, original founding of the colony but it's those lost years in between which is what we're talking about here in the right. 1715 era you yep. know it, we're post king philip's war we're post salem witch trials we're at a time when you know our basic understanding is that the mounting tensions are against the english right. so maybe the pirate lifestyle would be uh, very alluring for someone almost like when a pirate board of the ship they'd say yeah i've been waiting for this yeah
0: exactly there was there was a boy uh, uh he they just discovered a foot actually at the widow, the the bone, um, and in Robert Louis Stevenson's book, he actually alludes to this boy John King, and he, uh, they say that his his mother didn't want him to go, but when he was given the option to go into the pirate ship, he wanted to go. You know, he was just a boy between nine and twelve years old, and they 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 actually the shoe was still attached, uh, and they have uh, this at the uh, widow museum in Providence. Provincetown, so fascinating, but yeah, surely an alluring, uh, an alluring life, an alluring option. And Bellamy didn't want to go home empty-handed, you know. And if if the stories were true that he wanted to marry uh, Maria and he wanted to prove himself to her family, then he had to come home uh, with some sort of money. And by the time he got down and was searching for the Spanish galleons, uh, really, the Spanish had recovered everything that they could from that wreck, and so there was nothing to be had. And so he did what everyone else was doing, and he went on the account, you know, as they say. And um, he felt he felt strongly about the fact that he had a right to do that and that um, he was not subject to the British government.
2: Well, and that was a good thing about being on those ships, is, as you mentioned in the book. It, it was pretty democratic. I mean, the captain yeah. was the boss, but, I mean, other yeah. than that, things were done fairly equally. Uh, but with that being said, you know, uh, there, there was the... the chance that, you know, one pirate was going to screw over another pirate, yeah. you know, maybe from another ship. And is, is that kind of what's believed, what ended up happening to Bellamy when when the, uh, I'm sorry, how do you pronounce the name of the ship? The Widow? The Widow. Okay. Yep. When it, when it uh, ran aground, was that, has, you mentioned different theories in the book of, of what actually happened, but what do you believe was, was the case of how that came to be?
0: Well, I think what happened was that Bellamy was not familiar with the um, Cape Water's and yeah, the Cape Waters were very dangerous. Um, there were no lighthouses at the time, and he happened to come back uh, during the worst nor'easter to hit the Cape until that time. Um, it, and so he he didn't know what he had come into, and he flagged down a couple of different ships. Um, the first ship was a Portuguese um, ship full of wine, and actually, was one of the funniest. Things as I was researching is that his sailors, you know, he he had his sailors board the ship. He had seven sailors board that ship named the Marianne. And when they boarded the ship, uh, they they went looking for wine, and uh, they they couldn't get down into the barrels, so they went into the captain's private stock uh, while the captain was standing on the widow, <laughs> very angry about all of that. And uh, there was a, also another uh, ship that he had. Uh, flagged down the Fisher and basically asked them to bring him into port. Uh, He wanted to get into P-Town, is where he wanted to go, and because of the storm and because of the bars, the Widow was a very large ship, and it was his uh, flagship. When he found the Widow, he knew that he would head home. This was a ship that was named after an African port. It was a slave ship. Uh, It was christened in England, and it was headed on its way back uh, to England with all of the treasure, and he knew that that was the ship he would go home with, even though he captured, you know, 50 prior to that. And so this was a, a big ship. Um, he he loaded it with cannons from his other ships in addition to the cannons that were already on it. So when the smaller ships ran aground in the storm and they were supposed to hold the lantern to help Bellamy into port, um, you know, story there are stories that say, well, you know, they didn't want to help him in support because they were afraid that he would raid Provincetown, um, and so they, you know, uh, led him onto the bars. The other ships were able to uh, wait out the night, but when the WIDA hit the ground, the ship literally broke. And when the ship broke, all of the cannons from the different decks came down um, onto pirates. I mean, there were over 100 pirates that washed up but plenty of them who were uh, literally pinned. Uh, The boy I was talking about before was was one of those pirates, literally pinned uh, under the weight of cannons and decks and everything else. And so I I think that he got, you know, everybody said, why is he going to the Cape? You know, nobody liked to um, head into around the Cape at that time because of the storms that would come up. And he was, in fact, supposed to go to Maine um, and meet up with his quartermaster in Maine, and they would go there and uh, clean the bottoms of the ships and, you know, get everything together. And But, no, he wanted to go to the Cape, and everybody said, you know, why did he want to go to the Cape? And, uh, of course, the big part of the story is that he went for Maria, and he was going to get her in um, and take her out of there and so uh he decided to risk it the weather had been good on the way up it was april you know and um this storm came on suddenly and i suspect that he had no idea and by the time he was in it it was already too late
2: it turned out to be one of the you know the storm of the century
0: right absolutely it it was the worst to hit up until that point and as a matter of fact they say that there was actually uh the cape was actually split um did enough of a break for Cyprian Hack, who was uh, a map maker sent in by the British Crown, because of course when they found out there was sunken treasure, they wanted it, they claimed it, and uh, he was able to get a whaleboat through. Wow! And so yeah, so uh, it was a devastating storm, and the people of the Cape were used to you know shipwrecks. Uh, you know, there's the old uh, moon cussers. These were people who did the same type of thing I was talking about with the lanterns, and maybe um, because there were no lighthouses, you know, they would put the lanterns out and uh, force some of these ships to run aground, and so they could collect whatever was, was left. And um, by the time Cyprian and Zaltak came to the Cape looking for this treasure, uh, the people of the Cape had already picked the Wida wreck clean, absolutely clean. And they said, What shipwreck? <laughs> there is no <laughs> shipwreck, you know, we have we don't know what you're talking about. And um he I found a great old advertisement at the Mass Archives which was really cool about how he said, you know, uh that everybody who took treasure from that ship had to come at a certain time and meet him and they had to give it back and then it belonged to the crown, um, and that and subjects they had to do so. And so there were some who brought uh, pieces back but they also uh they told him he was responsible for the bill of burying all the pirates. And he said, we shouldn't have buried them if you knew they were pirates. And they said, well, we did it. Someone has to pay the bill. So you have to pay the bill. And it turned out to be just about the amount of money he had made uh, from the people who brought money from the uh, goods from the ship. And so he left with nothing uh, but a cold and a hatred for Cape Codders. He was <laughs> 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 none too pleased. Uh, and supposedly his own ship was stopped by pirates on his way back to Boston, so. I don't know how true that is, but uh, he
2: had nothing to give them. <laughs> so. well, it seems like, though, as, as much as you know, Bellamy became a feared pirate uh, out in the open seas, uh, he, it seemed like he had honorable intentions to come back and, and uh, get Maria and to have that life that he hoped uh, he could provide for. Yep. You explore in the book the many different reasons as to why uh, she might have ended up in the mythology that she did. Uh, Whether or not it was a matter of you know she lost her love, and uh, or whether or not it was a matter of she felt burned by her love, whatever it is, she definitely morphs into something different than who we meet early in the tale.
0: Absolutely, she transforms, and we're talking only a matter of years, you know. Um, In these legends, she goes from this beautiful. Notably, this beautiful woman uh, who could have had anyone, they say, down the long arm of the Cape, you know, all over the Cape, uh, known for her beauty, to literally to this hag uh, of a woman uh, who who lived on her own. And, and they say, like, like you were saying, that perhaps she wanted revenge on Bellamy, perhaps she felt that, what happened to her was his fault, that he wasn't coming back for her, uh, that he lied to her, that she wanted revenge on him, and that the wreck itself was her doing, her pact with the devil, um, that she did this um, for revenge. Some people say that she... Um, She just longed for his return, that she loved him, that she she was not angry with him, she knew he would come back for her, and that she would walk the dunes at night, and you would hear her cry in the wind, and it was the cry of her uh, waiting for her love to come back. And if that were indeed true, uh, the place at which she had her hut, which they call Goody's Hollow, and you can see on old maps, uh, if you look at where the shipwreck occurred, she was literally feet from that wreck. And, and she would have seen it, because she would have been walking these dunes at night. Now, whether she knew Bellamy to be on the ship or not, she would have been down there at that ship, because she, like other people, would have gone uh, when these ships wrecked uh, to collect what she could. Um, she was supposedly very good with herbs, and she may have, you know, ministered to some of the um, sailors uh, who washed up on shore. Uh, perhaps maybe she would have even seen Bellamy himself. He was never, um, they, they never, you know, claimed to have seen his body on shore. Um, so some people say that he survived, and uh, perhaps he did. And, you know, perhaps they went to P-Town together, because uh, a lot of the stories say that they would have been accepted there. Um, I
2: think everybody's
0: accepted P-Town. Yeah, <laughs> so 300 years ago as well, uh, they'd have been accepted there. They, but... So uh, the story has become very bizarre at this point because, you know, um, is it that she hated him? And even in the stories where they say she hated him, they say at the last minute she regretted her decision and and she wanted him, you know, she didn't want him to die. Um, so you have a couple of versions there. And then uh, my my favorite version would be, you know, that she was waiting for him and then, and then when he comes, he, he dies, and you know how tragic um, for her that she would, after that period of waiting, that she would uh, witness that uh, witness the shipwreck. And so, uh, and then there are these great stories of years later of a man surfacing a couple years later in town, you know, with money always in his pockets, with a scar on his forehead. Uh, who would say blasphemous things when you let him stay in your home at night when he was locked in his room, uh, who they all said was a pirate, and many people thought was be- they thought it to be Bellamy. Um, and there's these great stories of how he visited Maria at her hut. And they're very confusing stories because the way in which uh, Bellamy and um, Hallett speak to one another uh, certainly does not indicate that they had any kind of love affair whatsoever. Um, it indicates a, a pirate who's looking for his treasure uh, that he buried, and um, knew that that Hallet had knowledge of it, uh, and thinks that she's deceiving him, and that she's hid in the treasure when she says she doesn't know where it is, or that's not much left. And so then the stories end with him killing her for that reason, or her killing him, or her committing um, suicide um, after he died. There's stories of him just walking into the water and drowning. Um, you know, to go back where he should have died with his men. And so these stories all, um, you know, start to come out depending upon um, the tales that you get. There were a lot of tales in the 1930s, I'm not sure why, but in the 1930s there were a lot of different books out that really uh, spoke to this legend with different uh, sort of versions of it. And she... um, It's just bizarre that she morphs, and then she really mixes in with the Sea Witch of Billingsgate. And then they start saying that the cries that you hear at night are her cries um, as as she finds Bellamy, you know, on the beach. Or it's Bellamy and Maria finally walking together, you know, the ghosts of the two of them walking together. And that you can hear her um, in the wind there. And and whenever there were shipwrecks for hundred years after that, they were blamed on uh, Goody Hallett always blamed on could Hallett. He <laughs> she did it that she was going to uh seek revenge on all sailors for what bellamy did
2: to her she became kind of like the freddie krueger of sailors you know exactly like,
0: exactly <laughs> yeah. on to. yep yep going
2: well, i was gonna say the book is called bellamy's bride the search for maria hallett of cape cod the author is kathleen brunell you can get it locally and at kathleen brunell.com amazon.com uh, the history of presses website and uh you know they they've got great books not just ghosts of the south coast but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but they, are, they have so many great books where you get into the real history of some of these uh local stories and they give authors a platform to to tell these stories uh i had always heard uh when i when i hear about you know ghost ships around cape cod yep. uh, i'd always heard uh, more about uh, uh you know maybe later you know the whaling ship era You know, you hear very few stories. Uh, It's either the the very early colonial ships or it's uh, it's always the later ships. You don't hear enough about the pirate era and and about those ships being seen out there, but they actually know that this ship did sail out there because it was found. The wreck was found, right?
0: Yes, the wreck was found, and um, many of the pieces uh, finds are housed in the museum on Macmillan Wharf in uh, P-Town. And Barry Clifford, uh, uh, Cape Crotter, he went out and he found it. And, uh, he's bringing up, uh, relics every, every season he goes out there. Um, and depending upon the shifting sands, you know, they find areas and they've brought up cannons full, uh, um, Amazing, amazing finds. And and one thing, too, about pirates, the other thing is uh, witches. And you don't often hear about witches on Cape Cod. And what I found fascinating was that while, you know, they were hanging witches in Boston, they did not hang witches on Cape Cod. They didn't do that. And I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, as a matter of fact, if, if, you, if someone claimed that you were a witch and your claim was found to be faulty or there was no evidence, you were fined. Hmm. Yes, but I thought that was really interesting. And really, she was just sent off. You know, she was jailed and she was sent off, but she wasn't jailed for witchcraft.
2: I'll say, I know a few witches on Cape Cod now. So uh, they'll, they'll be happy
0: to happy They like to their that. witches. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. And they have for a long time. So.
2: In the early stages of the book, you explore the, the story, the legend, and the lore of, of Bellamy and Maria Hallett. But later on in the book, you really start to get into their identities, especially yeah. Maria's and who she might be. Yep. And with that, you start peeling away some of the layers of the legend, and you start getting to the root of where some of these uh, you know, symbols that are in the story might actually come about. And I thought that was really interesting because instead of just taking the story at face value, uh, you kind of picked it apart and really saw the different allusions uh, to other stories.
0: Yes, and I, I, you know, we know that Bellamy existed, we know the ship existed, uh, um, we- we basically know that every part of the story existed except for Maria. You know, she's the only one for whom we don't have any documentation. And so, what I wanted to focus on was I wanted to, I wanted to try to find her um, and to see if I could. And so, I had to look at many different women. Um, and first, I had to pick apart, like you said, the folklore itself. And I had to look at all of the different stories and all of the illusions and and um, the fact that they be in an apple orchard. You know, is sort of biblical. And um, and, and so then. I, uh, you know, I looked at different women of the time, and I really narrowed it down. And I, I really feel I have it narrowed down to two uh, women, um, a Brown Brown and uh, Mary Howitt. And I had an interesting experience when I went to the graveyard, and I looked for Mary Howitt's grave. And uh, it was early in the morning, and there, there are tons of Howitts on Cape Cod, and especially at Yarmouth. Um, this is where the graveyard is, and so... It took quite a long time to um, find her grave, you know. And then when I finally found the grave, you know, it was very early um, March and uh, of last year, and, and I, I put my hand on the grave, and this very small breeze just sort of, you know, went right through. And it really felt like... Um, that was it, you know, she was the one. And kind of a little <laughs> like, sign like, there
2: from the other side. Right?
0: I really did, you know, it was really, really interesting, and, and it felt good, you know. It felt like um, like I had her, and I, I, we do have a will um, from uh, Mary Hallett, and she died as a spinster in 1751, uh, and she, she died in the will. It talks about the fact that she's going to be buried in a necklace of golden beads, and uh going through the research, I won't go into uh, specifics, but basically, the, you know, there'd be no reason for her to have those golden beads, um, nor would there be a reason for her to be buried in them unless they were very sentimental to her because as Puritan she would have given away everything that she had. And um, Ken Tinker who is a pyrotologist, um, as they call him, um, and he is a curator at the uh, museum, at the Woodham Museum, he, he was the one to find that will and uh um, that along with the fact that she also had um, ties to Great Island to the tavern there uh, where Bellamy spent time uh, that she 's the correct age and she 's living in the right place uh, really sort of pinpoints her uh, as a uh, as possibly maria Hallett um, we don 't know that her name was Maria because you know she was known as Goody Hallett for a very long time, which could have Depending upon the definition could illustrate, uh, a married woman, but also a spinster, um, or just a young woman. And so, um, there's only one other woman who I thought could be connected, uh, Mahitabel Brown. She married Hallett. She married Mary Hallett's brother John, actually. And, um, her uncle is John Knowles, which I found very interesting because all the stories say that Mary, uh, Maria Hallett gave birth to her child in her uncle's barn, her uncle John Knowles. So this Bull Hallett, through the genealogy, her uncle is John Knowles. So I found that very interesting. And after a year, she just disappears. She marries John Hallett, and within a year, he marries someone else, and she's just gone. And she marries him in the same year that Bellamy and Maria supposedly had their affair. And he was a sailor, and he would have been away. So I wonder if something happened there, too. But after my experience in the graveyard, I really like to think that Mary Hallett (laughs) is actually Maria Hallett. Um, There is no grave for Mahitabel Hallett. Uh, There's nothing for her. There's no death record. Uh, You can't find anything, but yet her husband, there's records for him and everything he does. The new marriage, his children, everything. And the only record we have of her is uh, the marriage to John Hallett. She just disappears.
2: Well, I'm sure that uh, when you were undertaking this quest of writing Bellamy's Bride. You know, uh, th- that song probably kept popping into your head from the sound of music.
0: Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> How do you solve a problem like Maria? So, Absolutely. But it seems like you've offered a, a lot of possibilities and a lot of potential. One thing that I want to ask you, y- yep. you, you talk about the ghosts and the witches and all, all the stuff that's associated with this story, but yep. what are your thoughts on, on the paranormal? Are you a believer that it, that it does exist?
0: Yes. Right. Yes, I am, and um, I'm. I am, and I've I've been fascinated with stories of the uh, paranormal for a long time. For well, a long time.
2: Then I have a proposition for you.
0: Okay. <laughs> How about
2: sometime uh, in this summer? You know, when the weather's a little bit better. Yep. We we make a trek, the Spooky South Coast Crew, yourself, your family, whoever you want to bring along. We all go down out to the to the area where you believe that Maria lived. The the what's it called Marconi Beach is that. And uh, we'll go out there with some of our equipment and some of our supposed communication devices that can get in touch with the other side. And we'll see if we can ask her some of these questions directly. That
0: would be very cool. I would like that very much. Right. That well, would we'll, be great.
2: We'll definitely do that. Because I'm, now I'm interested because when you're talking about you know uh, somebody that might really just be uh, a conglomeration of many other people, Right. Or, or when the story is actually lost, if you have that opportunity to make some kind of connection with the other side, you can get a lot of these questions answered and it, it's fun. It's, it's really fun to, to, to be able to touch history like that. So
0: yes, it is. And I, and I wanted to give her a voice because all of the stories focus mainly on the pirate. They focus on the ship and she's always just sort of like a little footnote, you know, and there was no one place that you could go to find her story. You know, what's her story? What are the legends? What's the possibility of reality? Um, and, and so I wanted to sort of give her a voice and give her a place.
2: Well, I think and, you've, you've done a great job of that. Uh, if anybody uh, out there is not from the area, uh, you'll get a great idea from this book of what Cape Cod people are like then, and I can yeah. tell you they're not really that much different now.
0: No, they're not. <laughs> I lived down there for a few years, and uh,
2: I can tell you firsthand. And it's also it's it's such an extremely haunted area. Everywhere you go, there's ghosts, and they're old ghosts. They're historical ghosts, but you never feel put off by them it's it's very enveloping and very embracing
0: yes that i mean exactly the way i felt um in the graveyard it was it was just a very uh it was a very good feeling
2: well maybe it's because it's surrounded by all that we can get into all the theories of why it's so haunted some other time but uh (laughs) we'll we'll definitely take you up on going out there and and researching some of this and and seeing some of these sites and anybody out there who wants to you know join in maybe we'll set something up in the summertime when it's nice and we can actually get outside and, and have some fun that would, be,
0: that would be great. In Clifford's um, book on the widow, he has some very interesting sort of uh, paranormal experiences as he's researching. Excellent. Yep. So You can't see? That's the thing. Cool. You, you
2: can never get too far from the ghost when you're talking that's about right. history. <laughs> right, the right. book is called Bellamy's Bride, The Search for Maria Hallett of Cape Cod. The author is Kathleen Brunel. You can go to her website, KathleenBrunel.com, linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com. You can also get it locally at stores like, I know the Sea Witch has it. Uh, yes. There must be some other ones in the area if you want to...
0: Yep, they. I know they had them at uh, Baker Books and um, oh, of
2: course, Baker Books, right? Yeah.
0: Yep, and also at um, uh, Borders and those stores in the area too, and so, also on the website. So
2: yeah, absolutely. If you can't find it anywhere else, you can get it on the website. That's the best way yep. to get a to get a copy. And uh, we'll. we'll Have you set up anything for a signing at the Sea Witch yet? I know Marsha wanted to get you in there. No,
0: I definitely want to go down there. I love that store. (laughs) I love that store, and I was so happy when I found out she was carrying the book. So that's great. Um, It's such a great store.
2: Well, thank you for giving us a paranormally-themed love story that we could share here right before Valentine's Day. (laughs)
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: All right, thank you, and uh, good luck with everything, and we'll be in touch.
0: Okay, thanks a lot. Have a great night. Okay, you too. Bye-bye.
2: Kathleen Brunel, again, the author of Bellamy's Bride, The Search for Maria Hallett of Cape Cod. Coming up, we're going to explore a little bit later on in the area's history. We're going to talk about the Revolutionary War and uh, four brave former slaves who fought and defended this burgeoning country back then uh, and the land they were given in Plymouth and what it means the people of today and what they're trying to build there as well with our guest uh, wayne ibn musa barboza he's the vice president of an organization called parting ways so we're going to talk about that and believe it or not there's some paranormal connections to that story as well so stay tuned we'll be right back with more we'll also tell you a little bit more about dead of winter if you haven't heard all the details yet you'll know them by the end of tonight only four tickets left ghostvillage.com backslash lizzie what are you waiting for they're going to be gone moniz's beard is going to buy two of them We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
1: Spooky South Coast is back. It's Saturday night. I have no date. A two liter bottle of Shasta and my all rush mixtape.
0: Let's rock. I'm not afraid.
1: You me. Welcome Just to Spooky South Earth. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.
2: Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Let's see if I can get it right this time. I'm Matt Costa. He's Tim. No, wait. Tim Weisberg. The silent assassin Matt Costa. Science advisor Matt Moniz and his beard. So if you're watching Spooky TV, you can see that thing in living color. And there's actually a couple of different colors in it. So. Oh, there he goes. And we just went from uh, hundreds of viewers to three. (laughs) Thanks for staying in there, Chris. We uh, <laughs> we had a great first hour talking with Kathleen Brunel, the author of Bellamy's Bride, The Search for Maria Hallett, and we're going to be talking about parting ways in just a few minutes, but before we do that, we want to share with you a little bit more information about the Dead of Winter event. It's coming up on February 26th at the Lizzie Board in Bed and Breakfast in Fall River, Mass. It's being presented by Spooky South Coast and GhostVillage.com, which means that Jeff Belanger will be in the house, and if you've ever been around Jeff Belanger at an event, You know that's worth the price of admission alone, and uh, if that wasn't enough for you, we're also going to have Bill Chappell's new Spiritcom that people can actually use on the investigation that night. It's going to be dinner. It's going to be investigating. It's going to be lectures, not necessarily in that order. Uh, It's going to be a chance to use Spiritcom. It's going to be a chance to learn some different approaches to paranormal investigation, or if you've never actually investigated, doing it for the first time yourself. And uh, it's – I'm just excited. I was looking over some of the guests that are coming to this, and it's going to be a real mix of seasoned veterans. And, uh, yep, and as Dave said, it's a chance to touch the beard in person. The beard will be there, actually signing autographs. Moniz, I don't know if he's going to make it, but the beard will be there. And uh, you may even, if you're lucky enough, find pieces of it in your dinner. So can we make sure that that doesn't happen, Matt Costa, producer <laughs> and co-chef of this event? I, I say I say co- like I'm really going to help. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, And, of course, as we mentioned uh, on previous shows, you're also going to have my wife, Soria brownies available to you, also worth the price of admission alone. There's four tickets left, $125 a ticket. You've got to go to ghostvillage.com backslash Lizzie or call the Lizzie board and bed and breakfast, and you'll be able to get some of those four remaining tickets. Uh, I also want to throw a couple of shout-outs. Is that what the kids say, shout-outs out there? <laughs> First of all, I want to thank our friend Dave Schrader at Darkness on the Edge of Town Radio for promoting the event this week and having Jeff and Leanne Wilbur, the owner of the house, on, talking about the history of the case and the ghosts. And, and, you know, Dave being in Minnesota and also, you know, people listen to him nationally and internationally. You know, a chance for another part of the world to get more of the Lizzie Boyden story, more than just what we hear in the nursery rhyme. So uh, thank you for that. Also want to say thank you to Thomas O'Callaghan. Uh, who emailed from Manchester. No, not Manchester, New Hampshire. Not Manchester by the sea. We're talking about Manchester, England. And uh, he's a loyal listener, so we want to say hello to him for dropping us a line. And Ray J, our good friend Ray J, who is one of our biggest fans, and we appreciate it, brother. That's uh, I can't express enough uh just how great your email made our day feel. Uh, but he wants to know why there's no Spooky South Coast Wikipedia page. And I know, Matt Costa, you and I have both tried to do it, And it's kind of a pain in the butt to to start posting stuff up on Wikipedia. It used to be easy. I remember I used to be able to go on there and delete stuff about Moniz all the time. But then, uh, you know, for some reason... So you're the one that kept deleting that on me. I did. Well, (laughs) because, you know... You know how many times I had to rewrite that? But it wasn't true. So, and I couldn't let you misrepresent yourself like that. No. (laughs) No matter how many times you put it, nobody was going to believe that you were Mickey Rock's Stunt Double in the Pope of Greenwich Village. (laughs) What are you laughing about? You were Eric Roberts stunt double. They actually took your thumb. My thumb. They took my thumb, Charlie <laughs> We by the way, we could almost do a whole hour on the the Trailer Park Boys after after last night. That was hysterical. It was hilarious. Netflix. It's all on Is YouTube, it all from Netflix. Write that down. <laughs> but uh anyway. So we want to say hi to him uh ray j for suggesting that we're going to try and do what we can to get something up there maybe one of our listeners out there is a wikipedia contributor uh and can send me an email and i'll tell you what kind of stuff to put up there because we only want true stuff you know like you know that i'm 135 pounds and six foot two (laughs) and uh i am the guy that plays the flute all right. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will get into some serious history talk with Wayne Ibn Musa Barboza, the vice president of Parting Ways, and we're going to talk about something that I never learned about, and I lived in Plymouth growing up. I read the history books that they gave you in Plymouth Public Schools, and I never heard about this, and as much as you know, I was embarrassed about how little we knew about King Philip's War, I'm even more embarrassed that we don't know anything about the four gentlemen that we'll be talking about. These four souls, uh, four brave souls, former slaves who defended our country in the Revolutionary War and the efforts to build a museum in their honor on the site. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about that. We'll also take your calls. The phone lines are going to be open 508 996 0500, 996 1420. You can also email us, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com or jump in the chat room at SpookySouthCoast.com Slash Spooky TV. We'll be right back with more.
1: Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back.
2: All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz. And joining us on the phone now is Wayne Ibn Musa Barbosa, the vice president of Parting Ways. And uh, you can check out their website while we talk, partingways.org. They're also on Facebook and on Twitter. And uh, you can find out all the information about Parting Ways, the organization, what they do, the site, what they're trying to preserve. Uh, but we're going to talk with Mr. Barbosa now about all that. Good evening, sir. Thank you for joining us.
1: Good evening. Thank you.
2: I, I first learned about Parting Ways through Jack Blaine's column in last Sunday Standard Times, and I have to apologize for that being the first time that I've ever heard of it. I actually, as I mentioned before, growing up in Plymouth, uh, and I went to Plymouth Public Schools in my elementary years, and I don't ever remember hearing about it from any of my teachers.
1: Well, that, that's not something surprising to me, because uh, Parting Ways is one of the nation's biggest secrets to. Uh, Connect to uh, the founding fathers. Uh, I think you know by uh, the little research you may have done that the, um, uh, the the people that fought in the actual war was only three to five percent of the people, mm-hmm. and of that three to five percent, five percent were African Americans. Now it only makes sense that uh, uh, during slavery time that some of these men were fighting for the landowners and the slave owners. And uh, when the war was over, Washington made sure that each town gave these men some land, their freedom, and provisions like any other veterans. You know, so what it boils down to, over time, it all uh, uh, evolved into the town-owned lands.
2: And is that how it would go, even though they would... Uh, kind of bequeath these land to the soldiers that, that fought, it was still technically the town that owned the property?
1: Well, actually, the, the, they waited, like they do now. They wait until the people who know the real story die off. You follow what I'm saying? I,
2: I think I see what you mean, yeah.
1: Yeah, they die off. Or if you don't write in the history books, of course, all you have to do sit on the line, sidelines and wait for the people, witnesses, to die off. and you got one story.
2: It, it, but when I'm I'm hearing the story, you know, as I said for the first time, uh, it seems to me though that it's probably representative of something that happened in a lot of areas in a lot of communities, where you know these uh, African American soldiers, these freed slaves who defended the country, were given an honorarium, but then eventually shuffled away from the history books.
1: Yeah, it, it, you got it. <laughs> I, I... Yeah, and, and only time this comes up uh, is once a year. You know, we have the shortest uh, month of the year. We have the Black History. And because um, we, we have icons, uh, the founding Fathers, you can't shake them anymore. You can shake the uh, office of the President, you know, get mm-hmm. in trouble. <laughs> and uh, a lot of politics took place uh, over the generations on how they, they got that land. Because ain't just Plymouth, there's... Uh, uh, Kingston's involved, and in fact, I'm in Rhode Island, and uh, the Newport Tower has a, a great history tied into this uh, Portsmouth Memorial, which is dedicated to Black Patriots. Well, now the whole nation doesn't need to have a memorial. This is it's only hidden here in Rhode Island.
2: I just I, I don't understand why uh, when you know these it's not like these men were you know s- still enslaved at the time that they that they served and that they were kind of being forced to serve i mean these are are gentlemen who did not have to do this they enlisted to defend this country a country that the whole reason they were here was <laughs> because they were forced to be here originally yet they wanted they they love the idea of this country enough to fight and i can't understand why that isn't being honored
1: Well, uh, that's the whole problem. This is what began the whole story about parting ways. At the time, um, I was busy doing uh, activism uh, with the youth and so forth when I first heard about it. And when they took me up there, I only had Christmas Addicts, the Boston Massacre, you know, the basic stuff. Mm -hmm. And to tell me, after uh, going to the Myanmar March, uh, knowing most of the people that were organizing this big event, And none of them knew anything about this history. just blew me away. All right. So when I went out to Plymouth, here we are in the middle of the woods, (laughs) and we find these graves. And there's not four graves, there's five. Okay. Now, we do a little bit of research, and we find out from the library, there's four file cabinets of virgin documents, such as birth records, deeds, et cetera, et cetera, um, that were hidden. Uh, in the library by the library people who just resigned at that particular time, and she said there was bundles that were thrown away of African American and Native American history. There was tons of stuff thrown away, and this was the last remnants before she retired. She hung on to it, and she kept these file cabinets straight in her booth. You know, her little uh, compartment where she worked in the library. So now. I would how come these archives weren't documented and, you know, put in for public view, you know, for research? Mm-hmm. Well, when we finally got the drawers open, because they had been closed for a long time, we looked at these things have never been touched. And, I mean, if you pull the paper, it's brittle. It's all handwritten documents. <clears throat> so, of course, that's going to lead you to dig and research more. So the more digging we did, we found out. There was a specific reason why they didn't want the black founding fathers or the black veterans in the history of America's foundation. Because it tied in with the slave issue. Because there would be no, oh, there would be no. I mean, it took uh, 30 acres of, of uh, hemp just to provide the rope for one ship. Now, who's picking all that hemp? Mm mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a lot of labor involved. And when you talk about the Wapanoags and the Cape Verdeans and so forth that have been living there, we're going back to 1100, not 1492, and not 1620, 1100. Okay, Mm -hmm. so this history, like the Wapanoags and the Narragans and so forth, has been suppressed because it's talking about the people who were native to the land when these Europeans arrived. You follow?
2: Uh, absolutely.
1: Okay, now, we basically know a little bit about it these days. But what we don't know is the occult side. It was an occult side. You know, the, the burning witches and, and the, the uh, protesters uh, from uh, that came here called Protestants and pilgrims and so on, they all had their own religious beliefs, and they were looking for freedom, too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, the same reason why anybody, like the Egyptians, they fighting for freedom. They're not fighting because they had to fight. You give me a gun and I, I, I'm a slave, I'm running away. These guys were fighting for freedom and the promise of some land, an opportunity. And this goes way back. So anyway, uh, just to get back on the parting ways land, there was too many mysteries, too many uh, uh, cover-ups. And the curators of the museums and the Plymouth Plantation didn't want to bring this history out. And it took uh, years for me to finally get to the point where the Sons of the American Revolution accepted the idea that we weren't going to give up on this story. So they collaborated with us and they recognized it and we're working with them now. So um, long story short, uh, once the Sons of the American Revolution uh, recognized and and gave due honors and and respect to that site, they also had a ceremony which was never seen before in public uh, at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in 2006 on Patriot's Day. At that time, uh, they reinstated W.E. Du Bois, who was a, uh, one of the first African-Americans in the uh, SARS organization. They also reinstated all 5,000, an estimated 5,000 uh, veterans who fought so that they would be eligible uh, to be members of SARS. Now, SARS is not just the descendants of the, or the bloodline of these uh, revolutionary founding fathers; They were also the bloodlines of um, aristocrats from here in England. Mm-hmm. And they were in very deeply involved with the Masonics, uh, Templars, Knights uh, Knights of Christ, uh, all the way to John D. And this is where Cape Verdean's oral history kicks in. All right. um, they have oral history, which is a Portuguese- African dialect called Creole. Mm-hmm. And they sing musical songs that have ancient uh, uh, vibrations in the drums, the beats, uh, the sounds, the cymbals, you know, and so on. And it kept bringing back uh, this museum that's located in Plymouth where the articles they were showing. They kept bringing a bell to me because they, they were vases the same kind of vibes you see at the Dead Sea you know. And they were calling it Tom and Rand Johns that came from the Caribbean area, which ain't true, you know what I mean? So when we went to the uh, curated museum, the Plummet Plantation, you name it, historical societies, nobody had information, and the ones that did didn't want to give it up. And we're talking about learning institutions like UMass Boston, Darwin, wow. Brown University, and so on. Now, they've been holding on to these artifacts and this uh, information and had a couple of digs. Each time they have a dig, they're keeping this information and putting it aside because you can't do the parting ways story or the story of these black patriots without rewriting the entire history of the founding of this country, which discloses a Masonic occult founding.
2: Hmm. Now this sounds like uh, something that we've discussed with other people off the air. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, actually, in full disclosure, uh, I'm I'm actually standing next to a, a Mason now, and uh, Matt Moniz uh, has been a member for a few years now, and I try to get the secrets out of him, and I can't. And I know well, he knows them.
1: Well, that's that's the whole thing. These days, and I'm sure he will have to agree with me, um, the Masonics are anxious to get uh, information and to uh, uh, bring new life and new blood into their lodges, uh, because the jig is up. You know, they know that the history has to be recovered and rewritten, that our icons weren't, uh, you know, gods, and, and <laughs> you know, they were humans, and, they had, uh, you know, they had another side. But most importantly, how it ties in is the denying these veterans, because this is what Parting Ways is all about, denying these veterans, these founding fathers, who evidently fought side by side with Indians, blacks, even women, during the Revolution, before the Revolution, and working under Washington were given sovereignty as a citizen in this new nation. That can't be taken away. That's why the land is under the control of the Department of Interior. Okay? Now, when I uh, got the book on uh, the Department of Interior puts out on African uh, information, it had nothing about the slave trade, when it came to the Cape Verdean Islands. In fact, even the maps excluded the islands. It excluded the words, it excluded the culture, etc. And this is the most important part Cape Verde is where the slave trade began. Really? Yes. A lot of people think that the slave trade, as they call it, uh, started when Columbus come over here and, you know, and, uh, took the land Now they needed blacks. But it's the other way around, okay? First off, they weren't doing no trade. It was a kidnapping. And that didn't take place until after they had killed off many tribes, the uh, Arawak, the Wapunaw, the Batuk The Batook especially were taken to, the women were taken to uh, Cape Verde. For a hybrid experiment to create a uh, a brown skin uh, hybrid of their own that they could trust, so they could turn their back and let them do their labor, and they had to teach these Cape Verdeans uh, as their own children. All right, how to navigate ships, how to control the uh, slave products and services that they had to provide. You know, uh, like anybody, they got a little money. They're going to pay people to do the work. Why not get a son or a daughter? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean. So they—they they were uh, even up until the say the '70s, Verdian people actually had on their birth certificate that they were Caucasians. and they were treated entirely different from the African Americans. And they, they believed it like the. Uh, British African uh, immigrants believe that they're British. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, I know what you mean. Uh, especially if you, you're Portuguese. You know the Knights of uh, Templar or the, or the Knights of Christ uh, from the Portuguese castle of there These were the Sinclair tribes. Well, Are you familiar with them?
2: Yeah, well, I've, I've heard of them in, in some of the literature that I've read on the Templars.
1: Well, they built the Newport Tower. In fact... Uh, this went to solace. It was a lunar eclipse that took place uh, at 10-something la- the night before the Venus Alignment. And some of the, uh, in fact, I can uh, tell you the name of the person. He's the editor of the uh, Masonic uh, Lodge in East Providence. Uh, he does the paper or something. And he's uh, uh, the one that gave the tour to the so-called initiate. because who else would be out there that time in the morning, the freezing snow, (laughs) gave a tour to the initiates when we arrived. Now, because of my um, shamanistic skills, you might say, (laughs) uh, I catch these ceremonies during their uh, alignments and astrological uh, rituals and so forth. I've been catching them as an invited guest. And they have to accept... you ever hear The Widow's Son? No. Well, your boy's right there, actually, if you ever heard of Widow's Son. I am familiar with what you were referencing. Well, you're being quiet, my friend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he might be under orders to be quiet.
1: <laughs> well, you, you swear, no. I mean, there's nothing devious behind this. No. A cult doesn't mean bad. No. It just no. means hidden, secret, you know something they keep sacred to themselves. But the idea that uh, you're keeping the labor, the sacrifices, the deeds, and all these things that were uh, heritage for the African Americans that live in, uh, in this country today. And to look at their, the uh, how you say these stats say that you have to have a two-point something to be sustainable as a race. Mm-hmm. And here we had at 1.6, and they kill off 150,000 a day, you know, at the uh, um, birth control centers and planning. All this is going on in our community. Why? To keep a story quiet? To keep this, the history, Uh, you know, keep these icons looking like gods? You, you follow what I'm coming
0: no, I definitely do. So Parting Ways has been suppressed because of
1: this, because you can't, just like the Indians, you cannot tell the true story without destroying the lying story.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, the the mythology that they've built up.
1: Okay, we'll call it mythology.
2: <laughs> but it, but part of that though is you know that uh, you know so often when it comes to telling the true story of history, history is just told by whoever wrote the story at the time, and that's kind of why it's his story because he's the, he's the one that wrote it, he's the one that told it, and for the the mindset that they had at the time when they were recording all this information, you know, it took 200 years after these gentlemen were given this land before even that mindset began to even remotely be wiped away.
1: Okay, but we're in the 21st century. The race is over. Mm-hmm. We're a hidden race, all right? Now, as Americans, don't you think we should revisit this little problem? This We should discuss this. This should be on the table somewhere where these Soldiers could be recognized. Absolutely. Well, what is stopping it if you don't think there's something uh, big? (laughs) If it's not a conspiracy, what is stopping congressmen, senators, and veterans' organizations for 70. I mean, well, we're talking. uh, I got involved, the history goes back to 72. Our charter goes back to 1972. What. In fact, the people that were back there in 72 weren't famous. They were called the Gregory, but nobody knew him. Spike Lee, but nobody knew him. Uh, I can name a few other great leaders. Jesse Jackson. They all knew about this. But when they got the land and were supposed to build a museum, entities, so to speak, sidetracked them with success. Mm-hmm. And they kind of forgot about the mission. And this kept happening for 30-something years, okay? Now, only uh, me and this brother, who's the president now, uh, we with two veterans who are trying to get this story told uh, have been working on it for the past 10 years. And no matter where we turn, no matter if black governor, it don't matter what race you are or nothing, this is a story that, for some reason, denies these veterans of the recognition and the descent, the heritage of that recognition.
2: And, and that's what's the most amazing about this story, is that I, I looked up some of the information in your history on, on partingways.org, and for 30 years now, over 30 years, it's been recognized on the National Register of Historic Places. And you would think that that alone would get the ball rolling to have some sort of museum built there. And reading Jack Blaine's column, you see how many different, Legislators and how many different governors and senators and whoever this has been brought up before, it seems like everybody kind of gives you that initial (laughs) promise
1: to help. Well, they, I believe, they have good intent, Mm -hmm. but you got to look at the, um, let's say, legal side. And I can actually name names now because God bless them he passed Kennedy uh, stopped this thing back in the seventies, basically because the. The African Americans during that time were treated with deliberate indifference, and the caveirians were like the only mediators between the races at that time. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to build the nuclear power plant up there. Now the old man that kept this history alive, Andrew's family, he just died the other day. Uh, he's five generations. They actually his children worked in the dig and everything. The point is that they were uh, discredited. They lost their jobs. They actually took a case all the way to uh, the Supreme Court and fought it himself and and virtually won it. But the the compensation thing changed with the politicians. You follow what I'm saying? Yep. All right. So, in, in, in the history behind it, where Bechtel, now remember, Bechtel back then was building these nuclear plants, and so on. Uh, and this ties into the same people that spilled this stuff up the Gulf, <laughs> you know, in the underground digging they're doing, and these secret sites and so forth. These are the same people. Um, they've taken the native lands and the uh, people's culture and their, their, their whole background and heritage, and they've industrialized and commercialized it for profit, which is normal for, you know, today. We understand that commercialism, you know. Uh, mm. it's a it's, it's Necessary, a necessary
2: evil, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah,
1: necessary. But where were the percentage, the, the 5% of, of, of African-American jobs? Where were, in fact, Plymouth Plantation refuses to recognize party ways as a part of uh, Plymouth history?
2: Now, why is that? Now, that, that? I mean, that to me, that's the most inexcusable part. It's one thing to have these politicians that are happy to shake your hand and promise you to look into funding and then not deliver. We've kind of come to expect that uh, from politicians. <laughs> but when you have an organization whose sole purpose it is is to uh, you know, perpetuate the history of the Plymouth Colony, you can't but ignore part of the Plymouth Colony.
1: But it's, it's one thing to say what is right and moral. But if it's not being in practice, it's just talk, and this is what's been happening. These guys, these politicians and, and people have a good intent when they start, but somewhere up the chain, someone says, squash it. I haven't seen in the past 11 years one dime donated towards the seven. And the ones that do support us, such as the Sun of the American Revolution and um, uh, the, the daughters of uh, DAR and all these uh, veterans organizations that have been involved, they just invite us so that they can appear as though blacks are now being involved.
2: Well, you say that you haven't seen a dime of donations. You mean from the government and from, from these organizations?
1: From any organization, from
2: any,
1: any, I'm saying any. And we're a nonprofit since 1972.
2: But you, you, you must have some private individuals who are putting up donations.
1: Most of the individuals that are involved that are putting up anything is coming out of their park are the members of Parting Ways.
2: So that should show these other organizations that there is... You know, people who are supporting this, who are passionate about this, you know what it boils down to. You know, we, we know what everything boils down to. Group A group like Plymouth Plantation or some of these legislators, they look at it and they say, you know, it's a nice idea, and when we need the PR move, we can do it. But for now, we look at it, and it's not really going to be a sustainable, a- economic thing for us to invest the money in. If we thought we were going to start getting $20 a ticket to have people go through there like they do at Plymouth Plantation, it would be a different story. And that, that's, you know how well, it works. No, no,
1: I, I beg to disagree with you on that. You don't. You don't. Oh no! I'll give you an example. The the one memorial that's dedicated to the Black Patriots in this country is located in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. I don't think they have a Black population up there, but it's way out. Okay, and it's the middle of two highways. Okay, Uh, there's no structures around it for you to really park or to sit or anything like that. But it's built. So, uh, it's on ley line. It has a uh, square door where you could walk through a uh, portal. On one side it has the, the other side has the image of the black. It's a beautiful, beautiful memorial, but nobody goes there. No, no scoop buses. <laughs> no kids know about it except for what we put out there. It's not promoted, not even by the ones who will support us at events, and these events, because it's usually televised or it's public and it's political, and, and they look at, So, you know, we kind of use each other, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. But as far as money, you put your money where your mouth is, and I can hold in my hand five fingers and tell you one of those fingers ain't paying. These are the members. Okay. Okay. The, the that, would the thumb, right? <laughs> that would be the thumb, right? Excuse me? That would be the thumb, right? <laughs> it seems like that. It yeah. seems like that. But you're talking about guys that have been dying off trying to tell this story, who have been ruining their personal and family fortunes trying to, to get this thing out there and they're not professionals. Professionals take it, get your grant to store it somewhere and archive it. And, and just get the money every year get another grant put a little paper out on it to, you know and just keep it in the, the, the university
2: well th- it seems like this museum you know aside from recognizing uh, these individuals and we and we should let people know who they were Plato Turner Cato howe Prince Goodwin and Kwame quash uh,
1: and there's a fifth grade
2: and the fifth grade has uh, the fifth grade hasn't been determined with a name is that
1: Well, this is the controversy. Now, my research tells me that they're not even the graves.
2: Okay. Just markers that were put on that land?
1: My research tells me that that land was very important. In fact, every bit of the land that was given by this uh, proclamation that Washington told the the towns do were specifically... um, uh, back in those days, they, they, they put them on way lines. They call them energy lines, whatever, mm-hmm. geometric lines. And supposedly, it, it generates good energy. Okay? They build their churches, they build their, you know, temples, they cast on these lines. Well, that land happens to line up with some very significant sites. Okay? And we're talking about the Newport Tower, the Kensington Runestone, Stonian. These things are lining up for a reason. In the Templars and these uh, researchers today are finding out they also uh, align to the stars and astrology and things like that. Now, what do they know that they would want to just wipe out an entire group of people from the history books? Who got that land? For example, the first thing built on that land was a road that divided Okay? Then, later on, they put a school, a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, where did they get permission? Because the Department of Interior didn't give it to them. You wouldn't build on a cemetery or another historical site, would you?
2: You're talking building the
1: school. Building a private school. A religious one at that, you know. Uh, you know what I'm saying? No, mm-hmm. uh, parochial school
2: and and for those who are, are familiar with the area we're talking about this is on route 80 in plymouth right
1: uh, we're right talking about the sacred
2: heart high school right and uh, i can tell you i've gone down that road many many times uh over the years because uh it was kind of my back way to a lot of things and i never realized that that parting ways was even there
1: oh there's, there's a lot more to this land you know trust me uh, in fact, they was getting ready to, when I came in the picture, they were getting ready to build a crematorium across the road from the cemetery. And, um, when you look at the, what the condition the site was in, when I, uh, you couldn't find it. You had to push, push like a, uh, outback. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? To get into the site, there was no parking. You had to park on the side of the road, on an angle, because there was no parking space. We made to put a sign, and they put a little small 10 by twenty sign. Uh, so we built one, and they, uh, I built it personally, put a big white sign there so people could see it, made them put a parking lot or clear the land. and we we did a few other little beautifications up there. and we started doing ceremonies and rituals at events like Thanksgiving and so on, et cetera. But as far as getting support, in fact, they even closed the museum where they have the artifacts that are part of ways, uh, you know, uh, exhibits are. They closed it. And you could look in the window and see it, mm-hmm. and it's been closed. So now the the question is: the way they're treating this, as though there is a deliberate attempt to keep this quiet. Now, I would like to know why. Wouldn't you? Absolutely. Well, then, what happens? And I'll tell you another thing. I've gone to many, many organizations in three or four states. I'm a tri-stater. And uh, I've been to many, many organizations that are supposed to help and represent blacks. And when they first hear the story, they're all excited and enthusiastic to work with it. And when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, they won't even return your phone calls. Now, what happened?
2: Even the Tuskegee Institute?
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, this uh, Rhode Island Airmen's thing, they got radio shows. I've talked to all of them guys. And they'll talk to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had to put my own TV on show on because they wouldn't even invite me or call me back. Hmm. There's more to it. Trust me. I mean, you're talking about um, rewriting history, number one. And there's millions of dollars in textbooks, curriculum, and so forth. All right. Textbooks that aren't telling
2: the whole story, by the way. Huh? Textbooks that aren't telling the whole story, by the way.
1: They are deliberately not telling the whole story. It's
2: deliberate. Well, I mean, but if it's not going to be paid for by any of these organizations, if they're not going to get behind it and support it, then it has to be grassroots. It has to be the individuals who make it happen.
1: Exactly. Well, this is what we've been doing. We've been doing grassroots. In fact, uh, we made it clear that the intent that these uh, soldiers... If in fact the land was given to them for that purpose, it should be farming, agriculture, and, and, and you know a lifestyle uh, that was intended for their children. So our—I don't know if you saw on the website—we have a uh, vision of what we want to do on the land. Mm-hmm. We want to have a couple of acres of just pure organic foods, and we want to have windmills and solar panels on a conference center. So. Instead of these organizations going to uh, Ramada Inn and all the paying a fortune for a conference or an event, they could have it on this land. People, instead of going to parks, they can go to this beautifully landscape place. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Even fish farms. You know what I mean? Because I know food is going to be an issue for us.
2: Well, I know that if uh, if enough. You know, people get behind this vision, and enough people support it. I've seen things happen grassroots style. I've seen things happen in spite of something trying to hold it down. And I, I think that this is something that once more people become aware of it, you'll see that happen. How can people? Because uh, we are up against the uh, the end of the show here. How can people get involved if they want to? If they want to make a donation, if they want to get involved with the organization, do whatever they can to help.
1: Well, again, if they can contact us through the website. Or uh, I could give you uh, an address, uh, but like I said, it, it, all the information's out there. Mm-hmm. We're a non-profit. Um, not that we're looking for federal handouts and dictation and all that stuff, but uh, any dime, 10 cent, it just makes you feel good. You know, somebody oh, cares. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I recently got a donation as far away as Florida, and it came at a time because we give our DVDs away free, we go out to events and, and uh, out in front of schools and so forth, especially this month, and give away thousands of DVDs with this history on. Okay, now that comes out of two people's pockets. Okay, so if I can do that, one more person might be able to do double that, mm-hmm. and one more person might be able to. That would, I'm on a fixed income. I'm a great granddaddy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, congratulations on that.
1: <laughs> you know, I was a single father for twenty some odd years with thirteen kids. Whoa. You no, know, I mean it's all up, a matter of Google. Google it out. So hmm. when I offer my services to help young men and women uh, um, come up, create jobs, and stuff like that, I'm looking at land as a development
2: project as well as a memorial. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if if you can touch that younger generation as you are doing with, you know, get, getting these DVDs out there, it seems like they're willing to embrace the fact that, you know, history hasn't been told correctly. See, the more young people that I talk to, the more they realize, maybe even the teachers who are of my generation are telling them, listen, you know, this isn't the whole story. Even though it's not in the book, I'm going to tell you about You know, what happened over here? And I think as we're seeing more of those young people, and again, we're up against the end of the clock. We could talk with you about this all the time, but I know that you're involved in a lot of causes with today's youth, and you see the fact that they need something to kind of rally around.
1: Well, there's no leaders. Mm -hmm. We actually have a generation, and you can't name me one leader.
2: Even those who are leading,
1: you can't call them leaders because yeah, the nobody's following who they are. Yeah. What have they done since the sixties, yeah. seventies? What do these so but represent us? Whenever you need a, a, a African American to speak, that's who they are.
2: Yep. No, I know, and like I said, this is something we could talk about on a whole, a whole different episode. Uh, <laughs> But we, like I said, we are up against the end of the show, so we'll we'll tell people though that partingways dot org is the website where you can find all the information. I know there's some issues with the contact email on there. When I sent an email to it, it got bounced back to me. But you guys are on Facebook.
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you something. Um, the website of partingways dot org uh, has a webmaster technicality. <laughs> We're not experts. So you're looking you're looking uh, for somebody he, that
2: can donate some time to help you out and be a webmaster.
1: Well, that's what we're doing now, uh, reaching out now. Because I'll tell you, uh, up until 2011, we weren't looking for money. I know that sounds weird, huh? We were looking to get this information out. That mm-hmm. was the mission. Now we've accomplished that goal. We know there's enough people out there, mathematically, through deductive reasoning, that this information is going to just keep rolling perpetual motion. You can't keep secrets. Once you let it out, it's on its own. It takes a life its own. All right? So now you see it on the History Channel. Now you see it on the Discovery Channel. Now you're hearing about it on the uh, videos and, and the rappers are talking about it. Well, just 10 years ago, they weren't.
2: I hate to cut you off, but we are we are we we have reached the end point. Hey,
1: I thank you for hey, calling and giving me a chance to talk about PartingWays. Thank part you,
2: and, and be sure to send us updates with what's going on.
1: I certainly will. Remember, if you want good information, go to CapeVerdian.net.
2: Absolutely, CapeVerdian.net, and then PartingWays is PartingWays.org. .org.
1: All
2: right, thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck with everything, and uh, like I said, stay in touch, please.
1: All right, and you just have a good night. You too.
2: All right. We are uh, we're up against the end of the show, but uh, be sure to join us next week Stanton Friedman and Kathy Martin will be joining us to talk about their new book Science Was Wrong. So until then, stay spectacular.